Welcome to Andy, James and Andre Talk Money Stuff. Although Andy is the Oracle of Latham, and James is super smart, they are not your gurus. We are not your financial advisors. Please listen to the end of this episode for a full disclaimer. Thank you for listening. everyone it's uh, episode 17 it's the 18th of september 2022 welcome andy g'day andre how you going yeah good man good good how's your week yeah not bad just um fixing up some stuff um renovations wise but mm-hmm. getting there yeah 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 what about you yeah good man a few ponderances uh investment wise and and uh um uh i guess uh interesting story in terms of getting my tax return done for last year and um but yeah other than that it's all right maybe we'll crack that open uh a bit later yeah we will um so i told my um my my brother and my wife i'm gonna do this rant because i was i played them my explanation um of of the um euro dollar and and interest rates thing right and and i played it and then I added in a second one because um, I wanted to say something else. And then in the in the second explanation of the explanation, there were lots of arms and I don't know or whatever. And I said, I'm going to sound like I don't know anything when I play this. You'll and, sound like me. That's what uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> so, I played it to my wife and my brother and they're like, yeah, it sounds like you don't know anything. And I was like, it's an interesting thing because when I say I don't know, it's because I don't know, right? Yep. And... It'd be really easy just to take some textbook answer to a question mm. and say it like it's true. Yep. But the reality is, like when someone says what's money, for example, that's that's really debated what money is. So I'll say something like money, money type stuff, money-esque or whatever. I'm, I'm avoiding definitions of money in some cases. And, and in cases, I avoid making strong claims on how things work because- I've read, you know, how it's all supposed to work, but then I've read heaps of stuff saying, well, it doesn't work that way at all. And the whole education around this stuff is completely wrong Yep. in, in economics and definitions of economic terms. So anyway, for the audience, I'm not actually some bumbling idiot who doesn't know anything. I'm a reasonably smart person who doesn't know anything. And I just want to clarify that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. The, um, that's like probably a, one of my main paranoias of this podcast is- um, the way I speak, I say that um then, but I say um and I guess a lot. Yeah, right. Well, I, I don't think it's a problem, Andre, and yeah. and I think you're the star of the show anyway. So thanks, Andy. You're the, you're the, you're the Joe <laughs> Rogan and and the um Margaret Throsby put together. Who's you know, Margaret Mar- Throsby? She did the um she did interviews on ABC Radio in the morning. Oh, right. Um, at oh, least, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you want to learn how to do interviews and um and and be a good radio interviewer, study Margaret Throsby. I loved her interviews. She'd interview yep. anyone on any topic, and I find it interesting. Yeah, okay. She's my favorite uh, TV slash radio personality. I think it's funny. I've started paying attention to like how people uh, do do interviews and things like that, and I'm so amazed by people that can speak without saying um or these like repetitive thinking words. Yeah, because I'm. It's just such a big thing for me to. 
um, uh, I guess, mm. uh, and all that sort of thing. So, I guess the but, difference between them and us is they probably get paid for what they yeah, do. Yeah. And well, you get, even for, for you like, get what you pay for, chaps. Like when you're <laughs> when you're speaking, uh, the ability to a have ideas and link them to other ones and then come back to them is quite amazing. Yeah, it surprises me sometimes when I listen to episodes after. I'm like. I can't believe I managed to pull that out. It reminds me of- Pull that um, off, but pull something anyway. Like Dave Chappelle style jokes that- Not that what you're saying is joke, but like he takes you on this big journey and then goes, snaps you back with one line. uh, Yeah. Which is uh, is super cool. Yeah, I'm um, practically the greatest person who ever lived. (laughs) I think that's what the conclusion is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I was watching- I watched the final episode of Better Call Saul on, on, uh, I guess, Thursday night. And there's one scene where they're walking through the desert, uh, the main character and another one of the main characters, and they're carrying like bags of cash, like $7 million or something. And he starts, spoiler alert too, anyways. <laughs> um, so, but they've got $7 million in cash and they're like, we should just keep it, you know, because this is obviously some big drug lord money or something like that. And then uh, they're out in the middle of the desert, it's like boiling sun and they find a well. And the dude's like, well, what, what would you do with this? If you had a time machine, what would you do with this money? And uh, one guy answers, the the other guy answers, he's like, something along the lines, like he wouldn't take the money, but he'd go back to when he took his first bribe as a corrupt cop back in the 70s. And then the main character, Saul Goodman or whatever, goes, I go back to 1965 to when Warren Buffett took over uh, Berkshire Hathaway and I'd invest all the money in Berkshire Hathaway back then, and he'd be a trillionaire. Mm. And and uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. But then it was like just a straight up advertisement, basically. And I think Berkshire holds though, like the one of the owners of Haynes, like Haynes T-shirts. And he had a Haynes T-shirt like tied around his head because you know you walk, you tie a T-shirt around your head when it's when it's uh, when you're in the desert, when you're in the desert, or whatever. But it's yeah. like real overt, just like. Hey, yeah, right. There you go. And Berkshire, so, maybe he owns that, you reckon? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But Because uh, that's like two, two refer- overt references that I noticed in in that show over the last season. But um, So, this idea that Warren Buffett is this nice old guy and he's just been dropping product placement for the last 20 <laughs> years on us without telling us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I guess why, why I brought that up, I noticed that um, so what I do is like, Anytime I got a little bit of cash, I, I, I just you know sort of set it aside. And once I've got enough for a for a Group B share uh, of Berkshire Hathaway, I'll I'll just buy it. What's the transaction fee every time you're doing that? Twenty bucks. So and you pay two hundred what four hundred Australian dollars a share. So well, that th- that's my point. So with the when I first bought it, um, the share price was like three hundred and forty bucks or something. Um, plus all the transaction fees and everything like that. By the time you were done, it was about four hundred dollars. Now the share price has gone way down, but also the Australian dollar has, has gone, gone down. down. So yep. it's like, and 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 then when I went to do it the other day, it was like exactly the same. It's an interesting thing. The US price of something goes down, so you're looking at it thinking, oh, my price has gone down, but then because the Australian dollars dropped as well. Mm. It's basically even. Yeah. Yeah. When you convert it back to US dollars from Australia. Same. Yeah. Um, I, I think paying $400 for a share and a $20 transaction fee, yep. I don't like that. That's yeah, like okay. 5% transaction fee. Mm-hmm. That's, um, yeah. 
I don't know, maybe find a cheaper brokerage platform. Mm -hmm. I know Self Wealth does $10 a trade. Yep. uh, No matter how big the trade is, but I guess you want ones that are cheaper no matter how small it is. Yeah. Going back to that thing again, though, where there's um, the HIN, holder identification number Mm. for Australian shares, and then there's this custodian arrangement. Yeah. Uh, for for some brokers, even if it is Australian shares, so I think your Berkshire shares would be under a custodian arrangement. Uh, you, one, there's a case to say I'll pay more for brokerage to get the HIN holder identification number mm-hmm. where the shares supposed to be your share, as opposed to putting a pool of shares where your name is one of the owners and and it's held in trust for you. What, yeah, right. So, because I buy mine through a major bank, like there. Yeah, yeah. It's trade. um. So in Australia, you get a holder identification number. Mm-hmm. Like if I buy Commonwealth Bank shares, yep. I'll, I'll get a holder identification number. Yeah. And in theory, that 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 links that exact share to me as the owner. Yep. But if I'm buying shares overseas in the USA, I have a thing on my brokerage platform saying I own the share, but the brokerage platform itself probably has something where there's a, a pool of all these shares and they're held up by a custodian. And there's a thing saying I have a claim on one of those shares, but there's no actual direct link with me and the share ownership. Yeah. And, and obviously, having the direct link with share ownership has a, a, a sense of safety and probably actually has safety yeah. versus it, your shares being held in trust for you by a custodian. Yep. So, I, I see where there's a case to pay a brokerage premium for a, a share arrangement where you actually have direct ownership through the holder identification number. Yeah. I don't think that happens- with US shares full stop. Mm-hmm. I, I, if, if so, please tell me because I've been looking for it. Yeah. The only way I know to do it is you buy it on one of these brokerage platforms and take it off the platform into your name. Yeah, and, okay. and you have to find a broker who's willing to do that for you as well. Yeah, okay. But the the point being that if you're if you're buying a US share in general, it's put in uh, – it, it's held for you mm-hmm. and there's something saying, of all the shares in this room, Andre has – one of them, mm. whereas with the HIN, it's like there's these shares in this room. This share has this number. Yeah. That's Andre's hold identification number. Yep. That specific share in this room is, is Andre's. Yes. The same way um, you get these- it's like unallocated the gold. gold bar, sort of yeah, the unallocated gold. Mm. So, talk about the unallocated versus allocated gold because it sounds like it's pretty much the exact same thing. Yeah. So, uh, unallocated gold is, um, at least through the, the, the Perth Mint platform, is- I guess yeah, you buy the gold by by weight, and then uh, it's the idea is that it's physically redeemable at any point, but you don't have to pay for storage. And whereas opposed to allocated gold, you're buying actual bars, and also with the unallocated gold, you can buy uh, you can buy any amount, um, and especially on their gold, they've got a a gold pass um, app that's like just on a smartphone, and you can inv- like the minimum amounts like one dollar. Like you can literally save into it like a like a like a bank account, I guess. It'd be good if there was a thing like that for for purchases of investments where you could just round up any purchase to an even dollar. Yeah. So you get a coffee for four three dollars forty. Yeah. But you round it up to four dollars and that sixty cents just bought some sort of investment. Yeah. Well, I, that the, I, I investigated one of those savings um, the apps that do that exact thing, and it's but it doesn't actually. Uh, like you've got to 
do the money at the end of the month. It doesn't like physically take it out of your account and put it in like a savings thing. Ah, uh, so it's, it's a bit, yeah. It, it, it's a prompt to do it later or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was like, ah, oh, it's dumb. No, yeah. they'll, they'll work on it. And as long as you're owning the shares, you're not paying too much in fees. Yeah. So, so allocated gold has an actual number on the gold bar. Yeah. And that's yeah. allocated yeah, actual, to your actual serial number. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and either they'll send it to you or they'll you can pay to have it stored um, in their vault. Yeah, so that's um that's a bit like the the shares with the HIN that's yep. allocated gold, and then the the shares that are, are pooled, held in trust, mm. uh, the unallocated gold. Yeah. So there's just certain safety or a per- perception of safety things around that. Mm. Probably safety. So yeah. Anyway, I think if you're paying five percent to buy Berkshire, mm. and seeing as you're not getting a holder identification number, mm. it's worth looking into a broker that charges less yeah okay for their transactions i think there are some that will charge you a dollar for that transaction for yeah, example okay. did do you know of any well uh, i was with i was with interactive brokers yeah and i left them because with this GameStop stuff that happened a while ago mm-hmm. interactive brokers stopped trading and the head of the company started talking about the risks to the firm if trading continued and that just made me think hang on a minute what risk they, would you guys have if you're just a broker yeah. So that just raised a lot of alarm bells when I got out of interactive brokers. Uh, it was very expensive getting out because I sold shares and then the price went up and I had to buy them at a higher price. And mm. I think I told you that before. It cost me like 20 grand because of the share price movement. So, but I, I went out of interactive brokers into something that looks like I hold it in my own name, more yeah, hold okay. identification number type stuff. And I guess I had to. I switched out of some shares because they're in America and I wanted to get the holder identification number Yep. because the GameStop sh- shenanigans made me paranoid. Uh, but interactive brokers, you're paying like a dollar a transaction yep. or something. It's cheap as chips. Yeah. So, does that mean that um, I won't get I won't get an invite to the to the shareholder meeting? Or like I don't know. That's a good question. Because Westpac can go and then I can't go. Yeah, right. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But th- this is the thing as well. When, when you're- If you're deciding to buy shares- it's really good really early to get the right brokerage platform. Like yep. I was with Comsec yep. and I was quite active trading in my early years. I reckon I paid those guys like $20,000 in brokerage over my life, maybe 40. I don't know. Yeah, right. Way too much. Yeah. And I could have just found a cheaper broker that does the hot identification numbers, but I was really keen to start investing. And then once you're investing, mm. it's like, well, how do I move my shares off this platform? And yep. I was just lazy with administration several yeah. times and it ended up costing me tens of thousands of dollars. So, yeah. I'd, if someone's looking at getting started, find a brokerage platform. If it's in Australia, I think you should find one that does the hot identification number yep. and does it low cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, the cheapest one I've found that does that so far is Self Wealth. Yep. But I haven't looked very hard. Yeah, okay. I probably should look harder. But I mean, when I say I haven't looked hard, I spent a couple of hours and asked people I know. Yep. who work in finance. So that's yep. not not looking. Yep. So with the um with like the, the I guess the fees and and all that sort of stuff. Do you think it's better that I just wait until I got you know 2 3 4 shares worth? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, just think 5 5% transaction fees nuts. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're hoping to get a 10% return per e- per year you sort of cutting the ass out of it, aren't you? Yeah, you yeah. just halved your return, and that's if it gets to 10. Yeah, yeah. Like, say that's the average. Mm. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd wait to get more. Yeah, because I guess it was just more of a disciplinary thing. It's like, you know, it's that time, I've got that much money, off you go. And well, so. well, I mean, the behavioural side of, of 
wealth creation is really important. So mm. if you know for a fact you're going to blow it if you don't invest it, yep. then obviously that's better yeah. than just blowing it. Yeah. But if if you believe that you can hold on to it, hold on to that money until you have a few thousand dollars to buy yeah. shares, then I'd suggest that's better. Yeah, okay. Well, like, just because of the transaction fee. Yeah. I mean, thinking it like cracking it open now, I think it's probably stemmed from, I guess, the first sort of financial controls I ever put in my life was averaging all of my bills over the year and then splitting them into a weekly cost and then so every week just automatic transfers to them so when the bills roll up then i don't have bills oh so like all these split accounts in your bank no, account. not split accounts so just um automatic transactions to like b pay and oh they actually go to the biller yeah you're paying the biller in dribs and drabs yeah oh, i didn't know you could do that yeah yeah, well, yeah that's really like, good like and i'm ahead on on like so you get you see like you get ahead during the quiet periods and then it catches up during the busy ones so like the, the cash flows are just always the same, so you know exactly what you got. You don't have any big surprise bills and stuff like that. And well, that's good financial hygiene. A lot of people will have a bank account that the money goes into, but then they split that into like eight different accounts and, and every pay, a certain amount of money goes into a, a car account yeah. and that just covers registration, maintenance or whatever. Yeah, so- And then like, there's other ones There's, for, some, there's for things bills. that are outside that system. So, I, I, have, I have one account that does- um, uh, my home and contents and building insurance and uh, and car maintenance and rego. Yeah, so um, so an amount every week or every fortnight. Yeah, or yeah I think goes it's, into like, it's that. like you know, it's, like, it's about eighty bucks. Eighty bucks a week goes in there. So whenever I need to service my car, register my car, or to do anything, then uh, yeah, I take the money out of that account. And then when the yearly insurance bill rolls out, because they they don't do that, they don't let you pay in dribs and drabs. Um, then the money's just there, and 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 send it straight off. Man, that's really good. Like I've noticed some insurances, if you pay monthly, you pay ten percent more over the year, mm. right? So by doing it your way, yeah, and you don't pay ten percent more over the year, yes. In some yeah. ways, you're getting a guaranteed ten percent return, which yeah. is what is not a bad return to get in the stock market. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Cool, good, good financial hygiene, Andre. I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. Um, Right. Oh, so uh, what else? I came across a Robert Kiyosaki podcast. Um, he was as a James Ricard or Jimmy Ricard. You called him. Yeah, I called him Jim Ricard. Yeah, James um, Ricard. So this dude, he seems like a bit of a uh, a doom doom guy, like uh, skies falling sort of thing. And the only thing that's of real value is gold and silver. So he sort of started uh, by talking about. Uh, so the the digital like digital currencies and stuff um, doesn't matter if they go fully digital because it's kind of like the controls that they can impose like from central banks it's kind of already here. So um, he used the example of uh, the the social credit score in China, um, also the Canadian truck drivers, um, and also how Russia had their assets frozen in all the sanctions, like all the foreign money just could, like buy took it away and um so yeah with the canadian truck drivers i had no idea so to disable them they froze their bank accounts and then the truck drivers like no nah, we've got cryptocurrency that's fine and they froze their crypto wallets as well yeah right that really destroys the narrative for a bunch of the crypto stuff doesn't it yeah yeah and um and the things the like the social credit score in china if they see you at these protests and stuff about the banks they can just shut your life off. You can't catch trains. You can't- Yeah, it's disturbing, huh? Because like it's not like- Because the money's not physical. It can literally like if you're trying to pay something through your card, it just doesn't work. And, and um, 
And so he's, he, he talks about your gold and silver it's sort of out of the system and it can never be in the system. So when things go down, you'll, you'll always be able to pay for stuff. Well, but then it's like, what good is a gold coin to me if I need to buy, like say it's like, you know, Cormac McCarthy, the road, and everyone's eating each other and full apocalypse. What good is gold to someone? You know what I mean? If it goes that bad, what good is gold? Like, well, well, invert that a little bit. You had some sort of. Have you seen Quest for Fire? No. Uh, my little brother used to love that as a kid. I don't know why, but it's um, <laughs> it's like pre-speech humans or yeah. humanoids, yeah. and and fire is the the asset everyone yep. wants, the tool everyone oh, wants. Was it a computer game or no? No, it's an old like French documentary or something yeah, okay. like that. It's um, there's no words in it. I don't think. And, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's just like pe- you know, people type things going ooh, 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 and mm. trying to find fire and, and maybe developing speech at the end. I don't, I don't think so, though. Anyway, in, in, in our evolution, we would have been some sort of tribal monkey type thing, right? Mm. And then we evolved into caveman type quest for fire yep. societies. And, and there probably still would have been a lot of violence and a lot of poverty in, in those societies. And eventually, those societies evolved into something that we have today, right? But a stepping stone in that was going from this violent society to one where people used money as a means of exchange. And and that, it happened. And it happened across the world, different societies deciding that for some reason, we, we need a means of exchange like money. So, I think even in, I haven't read this, The Road but I'm just going to imagine it's like that zombie TV show. Um, yeah. So it's the the movie is spoiler like, alert. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> it starts uh, basically uh, an apocalyptic event has already happened. It's sort of alluded to. You see, like it's like fires burning everywhere, and this family sort of living together, um, and sort of just uh, I guess isolated to their house. But the um, the mother of the of the family sort of just walks off into the wilderness and. You don't really know what happens to her. Um, but then this guy and his son um, just set off down on the- They want to find the beach. And so they just walk down the road and it's, you know, it's like cannibalism. They're like escaping from Camino- uh And um, and yeah. And but then also the dude's dying of, oh, I think, lung cancer. But it's it's one of those things where I think- I don't know where I was going with this, but it's it's based around I think you know the sort of father son relationship, and you sort of get transcendent meaning through trying to make your son survive. Right. You know, I think. Yeah. Well, I think even in the road. Yeah. Probably eventually something will arise from that where they use money as a means of exchange. Yeah. And I think I'm not sure if my family when they fled Europe, I think they were refugees. Maybe they weren't, mm. but I I have this impression, unless I'm just mixing my family history with movies, where. Mm. They had to bribe people with gold and and jewelry to get places. Yeah, okay. So, and uh, I don't think if we have an economic collapse, we're going to end up in the same circumstances as a zombie apocalypse or whatever. So, the the pendulum can swing to extremes. Mm. How far it swings is one thing and and how much time it spends at the extreme. Like when a Mm. pendulum swings to an extreme, it's there for a second and then it goes back towards the middle and it spends most time kind of around the middle of the pendulum swing. And I think that's a good way of looking at the world and markets. There are these Mm. extremes but most time spent closely to the middle with things. Um, What what, what good's gold in, in in a collapse? Look, if people want to trade it, 
and that's it. And and again, that's the Peter Schiff thing that there's a history of people willing to accept gold. Yep. As payment for things. So it's sort of like the, you know, uh, I don't know, if faith is the right word, but it's like it's sort of tried and tested. Sort yeah, of no, thing. I think it is faith based ultimately. Yeah. You don't use it for anything, so. Yes. It's faith-based. Yep. And that, that's, again, why I was saying- if, So, if, in, like, devil's advocate, like, uh, for the for the people that say that, that faith doesn't- uh, it's, At a certain point, it's not going to mean anything. Maybe. Barter means stuff. Yeah. So, <clears throat> having skills you can barter is good. Yep. But it, 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 you had, again, societies or barter societies that eventually moved to money. Mm-hmm. So, even in prison, they use apparently cigarettes as trade. Yep. It seems like people like to have some sort of thing for trade. Yep. Maybe load up on cigarettes, Jim Rickards. And, and, and <laughs> like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. That's, that's the currency in, uh, in that one. Also, the, the, um, uh, Jim Rickard uh, <clears throat> started discussing uh, a sort of, I guess, like a wealth to weight ratio or value to weight ratio. So, gold's inefficient because- it's really heavy and it's, so it's hard to transport. Um, but he talked about diamonds being not bad because yeah, you can't, you can smuggle them. Like you, uh, you can put a whole bag of them up your ass and <laughs> yeah. leave the country. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you can, because uh, they don't show up in metal detectors and they're much lighter than gold. But uh, fine art, he was saying, is like in terms, because it's, you know, you can have tens of millions of dollars in wealth, but it weighs like, you know, half a kilo or something. You can't shove the Mona Lisa up your ass. (laughs) Yeah. But moving on from that in in terms of the fine art, I've noticed there's a, what's it called? Masterworks, I think. Uh, It's like a, I guess an investment platform where you hand your money over and they invest in fine art. Oh, I I saw this. Um, Excuse me, I'm going to clear my throat. Learn to invest in, here we go. Masterworks.io. Yeah, I saw I saw this. Um, if not this, then this thing, and and you basically take stakes in artworks. Yeah, and I really quickly became really cynical and was like, if you're if you're the guys managing that, um, like maybe there's a lot of bias in what kind of art you buy, and maybe you end up overbidding on the art. So yeah. it's it's a good concept having a stake in artworks as as an investment and i think in this propaganda it does it, it talks about the uh the price performance and it being an uncorrelated asset class to other asset classes yeah. or something it's like 15 percent net track record since 2018 yeah That's pretty short but it's a short yeah it's only a new concept but it's a yeah. it's a really cool concept it's got legs i think but i'll just I was, I was just asking questions like you know what stops them from overpaying what stops them from buying artworks off people they know yeah what, what, what's a governance like in that, I mean, not like they're not friends with Picasso, but they might know someone with a Picasso. So, just what what stops um mis misuse of the funds? But as a concept, buying stakes in art, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, the, looking at this, uh, there's a chart here that compares it contemporary art to the S and P 500 to real estate to gold. So, contemporary art between 1995 and 2021 uh, is 13.8 percent. The S and P five hundred is ten point two. Uh, real estate, I guess this is in the US, uh, eight point nine, and gold seven point two. But when they say contemporary art, I mean, are they looking at all the transactions? People, are they looking at some of these auctions? Like, where where's the actual? What are they calling contemporary art? Because I could buy art from some local art producer, and that 
probably doesn't go up at all. And that, that's yeah. probably not counted in that. Huh. So, you can break it down. Just looking here, you can break it down to the individual artists. So, you can invest in Banksy, Jean-Michael Basquiat. Basquiat. Basquiat, excuse me. Yeah, he was discovered by Andy Warhol, I think. Oh, um, Andy Warhol's right next to him. Yeah. He doesn't appreciate much, 10.5%. Mm. Jean-Michael's 18. Who's yeah. Cause? Uh, I don't know. Anyways. Michael Cause. It's K-A-W-S. I don't yeah. know. But anyway, yeah, so it's got it's got appreciation there. Um, yeah, cool concept. Yeah. The, the thing is, though, right, if, if the art's just sitting in a room doing nothing, it's of no value. Except for someone else going to pay more for it, right? So, it's yeah. kind of like the greater fool hypothesis. Whereas I was in, um, oh, where's where's Michelangelo's David? Is that in Florence? Not sure. Let's just say it's in Florence. Mm. Firenze. Um, I, I was in Italy and saw Michelangelo's David. You you pay like five euros to go into a room and look at it. Yeah, Florence, you're right. And I'm pretty sure there was a big room a big line of people getting into this room. It's like literally just like a room that hosts David and you yeah. pay your five bucks or yeah. and then you look at it and you leave. Yeah. That- Photography is so- allowed? I don't know, but that's a franchise, right? Yeah. So, if if people are paying to look at the Basquiat's, at the um, Warhols or whatever, great. But if they're just being bought because they're supposed to go up in value- yeah, okay. That's, so, like, are you saying like royalty streaming through museums or something? Something like that. There has yeah. to be, there has to, I feel like there needs to be something where the art actually generates income. Michelangelo's yeah. David definitely generates income. People are paying five bucks a pop to look at it. Yeah. When I go to the National Gallery of Australia, I'm not paying any money. Yeah. Every now and then I'll go to see an exhibition, but I don't know if the people who are providing the artworks for the exhibition are getting paid by the National Gallery for that or they're loaning it. Yep. I, I don't know how that works. So, yeah, it's just, it's interesting because art as an investment for the sake of buying art as an investment, if you're waiting for a bigger idiot to pay more than you, mm. then that's that's one thing. Whereas if the art's actually generating income like Michelangelo's, yeah. David, that, that's something else. Yeah. Yep. By the way, the Pieta in, in Il Vaticano is just stunning. If you ever ever go to- Pieta, what's that? It's, um, it's the one where Jesus is, is lying in Mary's lap. He's been taken off the cross. Yeah, just amazing. I've heard of that. Of all of that, that 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 art, it's just like when you see it in real life, it's just like next level. I was. I nearly cried looking at it. I was just like, oh, yeah, I was just like got emotional looking at it. I was just like, wow, this is the most amazing. Beauty is quite an amazing thing. That mm. like how it can, uh, how it can, uh, like you say, bring you to tears and stuff. Like you, big mountain ranges or like whatever. You, it's uh, yeah. And my favorite painting is the death of Marat by David and, and Marat, um, this journalist from France who got killed in the revolution. He's, he's in that, um, pose that Jesus was in, in, in La Pieta. Yeah. So there's a nice crossover there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So during the week I, uh, I went to try and organize to get my, my income tax done. And uh, had a bit of a uh, an experience of poor man pays twice. Well, I haven't paid twice yet, um, but uh, I, I chose a certain provider that may or may not rhyme with Schmacher Schmock. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and um, because basically because they were open late and I could go and see them after work, and I just wanted yeah. to get it sorted because this uh, you know this is my my last year before um, you know being a business owner, but I had for the first time had, you know, shares and gold and things like that. And 
when I tried to to do my tax myself on the online platform, I didn't know how to to calculate the capital gains because I liquidated some gold, but I was averaging in once a week. So there was like, you know, 52 different prices that I bought it at and sold it at one price. Yeah. So I wasn't sure what to do. So I was like, an accountant will know how to deal with this. And then also with my managed fund, because there's like three funds within it. Um, and I've done it and, and I did a bit of like switching uh, in the very early stages. So there was like a, some sort of tax event there, which they provided me a statement with. But I went to to this- Schmation, uh, schmash, schmock. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, the, they say it right on the front, come to the experts, we'll get you maximum deductions, blah, blah, blah. They didn't know what to do. Yeah. They, they told me to come back later. Yeah. I was yeah, like, how dare you? And um, so- it, Did you pay me any money? No, not yet. Oh, that's good. So, and, so the poor man I'm, could I'm, have paid twice. I, I must preface this with: I was going to book with with someone that that's um, that's known to me and known to Andy, Michael Holmes, an accountant yeah. in Farrah. Highly recommend. Yeah. If you're looking for an accountant in in Canberra, or even if you're not in Canberra and you want a good accountant, Michael Holmes. Yeah. Cool. So he's I was, not even paying sponsorship for this, but yeah. I'm I'm a fan. Yeah, and I was um, and it, it's just out of impatience. I went to to Shmecha Schmock. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I shouldn't have. I should have just been more patient. Should and have gone to Schmeichel Schmoems instead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that was annoying. And that's still unfolding at the moment. So, yeah. So because yeah, you've, you've had businesses and you've got like quite an extensive portfolio. Um, have you, what's your tax journey been like in sort of- in, in- Well, my tax journey was terrible. I have a friend who's got lots of money and I, when I was young, I was like, oh, it's really important to get a good accountant. And he was like, oh, I don't want to recommend just in case it doesn't work out. Yep. And I pressed him. So, he recommended his accountant. Yeah. His accountant, um, I told the, the accountant, he was at this place called, um, it sounds like Shmesha Shmem Shmerj Shmamram. <laughs> um, and- I, I was um I was at this place. Told the guy my situation where we have assets, but my wife and I have sporadic income. Yep. You know, there's a, some way to make it so we're not paying as much tax because those assets are invested. Yep. The answer was in my situation, family trust, hundred yep. percent family trust. Yep. Right. Um, I didn't know about this stuff at the time. I didn't know finance stuff at the time. Anyway, the guy doesn't recommend that. Tells me not to get a self-managed super fund. Um, because I need a couple hundred thousand dollars in my self-managed super fund. I turned an $80,000 super fund into like, you know, at its peak, $800,000 yeah. um, in, in less than a decade. Yeah. Um, so, but he would have advised against that, um, the, the accountant. And I was like paying 1500 bucks just to have the most basic tax returns done and no advice. And I looked at it years later. And I was like, I probably paid fifteen twenty thousand $20,000 in tax yep. or more maybe, Um because we didn't have a family trust mm. and all the shares were in my name. So, yeah. I'd get the tax even if yeah. my wife was, say, pregnant and not earning much money. Yeah. Um, so, that structuring was just like, oh, we should have that structuring done from the beginning. Yeah. Big difference. Um, and I was paying these guys 1500 bucks to do the most basic tax returns and give not only no advice, ultimately negative advice by saying, don't do things that you should do. Yeah. So, yeah. it's um, And that's, that's a, again, you know, I paid good money for these guys, good reputation. And completely disappointing experience yeah. as, as, a, as a user. Yeah. So, how did you get onto Michael? Uh, I got a friend named Will, yep. who's a financial advisor, who is a financial advisor I recommend my friends to. Um, and he said that if you're looking for an accountant, and I said, well, I am because I went to one my uncle recommended. Yeah. And, and that guy wasn't as proactive 
as I'd like. Apparently, had family things going on yeah. and was, you know. But anyway, I was like, as a professional, I just want him to have access. I want access to the professional. I don't. Yeah. Like his family problems aren't my problems as a buyer. Yeah. Um, and, and Will said, well, you know, my, my friend Michael is really good. Um, yeah. And I met Michael and have, have been there since and I find him to be really good. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So, with the uh, financial advice stuff, we're, we're uh, going to a lunch. You're, you're bringing me along to a, a luncheon. Of yeah, that's the- Will's. That's Will's place. Oh, okay. So, Will, my mate who's a financial advisor who recommended me to Michael is, um, yeah, he's-, he's I've recommended people to Will and, and Will's now invited me to some lunch that his financial group is putting on for clients and stuff like that. And, does and Will I'm, listen to us? What? Does Will listen to us? I don't know. Yeah, he does listen a little bit. But um, yeah, I've, so I've invited Andre along to this lunch because I thought it would be a novelty for Andre to come. And Andre's pretty excited, but it's just like some guy going to be talking some crap while waiting lunch and that's it. But yeah, yeah anyway. Nice lunch, but we're going to the boathouse. It's there, they're a client of mine. Oh, there you go. And uh, but yeah, very uh, pretty stunning location and, and stunning food. So yeah, good. Well, there you go. But so, what can I expect at this at an event like this? Is uh, this more like it's where it's like not so much the content, but it's like the collection of people in the room? I don't know, man. Like I've, I've been to this sort of stuff before. Um, this maybe not with these guys, um, but I've been to this type of stuff. And you just like eat food at a table and kind of have to make small talk. I don't. I'm I'm an introvert, yeah. So I don't like places where I have to talk to people. Um, I'm a bit the same too, and I don't have cool shit to talk about. It's like, yeah. So what's your portfolio? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just gonna be normal. It's gonna be the clients of of, of Will. So they're gonna yeah. be a, a spread of people in yeah. Canberra. Um, you might end up seeing people you know. Yeah. Um, and then there'll be some sort of guy doing a presentation talking about the markets in a way that's really vague and doesn't commit to anything yeah. because if you don't commit to anything, then you can't be wrong. Yeah. Um, that's what I guess. And then that's probably it. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, risk and resilience on the front line with Chris Reason, Channel 7 chief reporter. It's there you be, go. It's going to be good, man. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what else we got here? So- uh, a uh, an investment officer from Saxo Bank um, saying that central bankers can't control inflation with uh, rate hikes alone. I was, I was hoping I could show you. Yep, play the, the clip. video and just I guess just say stop. It's about five minutes long, but say stop whenever you're done. Okay, so whenever I want to have like a little rant, just put my hand yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Uh. <clears throat> because the world today is designed differently. You know, most. Sorry, everyone. Because the world today is designed differently. You know, most economists, 95% of economists is working on an aggregate demand story, but it's really about aggregate supply. So what the world is short of is real tangible assets and it's long intangibles like uh, IPs and platforms and the like. So you and I can get our toilet paper one day early from whatever service we use, but our ability to actually put uh, baseload electricity in the grid or getting you know, a transportation of a ship or getting commodities at the last mile is very difficult. And on top of that, a number of countries, including Australia, is short on labor. And, and in the case of Australia, labor cost is going to come very, very fast and all of a sudden. Let's talk about Australia now. Uh, the Reserve Bank governor spoke uh, last week and the market interpreted those comments with respect to interest rate rises is that they will continue to come but will moderate. Um, what's your call on that? 
I, I think, uh, similar to me, I don't think the RBA has any clue about what the future holds exactly because of these uh, consequences. That what you've seen, I think, in the public domain in Australia is sort of a, a semi-split between the, the Treasury, the Finance Department, the Treasury Department and the RBA. The, the government wants wages to go up and, and of course, the RBA wants to have wages to reflect productivity. What is lost in this story is the, the productivity, which is still lagging behind, and that the disposable income is negative. So no, I don't think the RBA has any ability to predict the rates. Neither did they have it one year ago or two years ago. I think part of the problem for central bank is to have a very dogmatic 1970s style uh, econometric model that predicts uh, inflation. And as I just alluded to before, we are in a supply constraint simply the private sector is too small, or the, the real economy is too small for the overall aspiration of fiscal, monetary and green transformation. So the governor in uh, his speech said that there is a narrow pathway out of this to avoid recession. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah, you know, define narrow, but 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 it's it's just words. And what they're really saying is that we have no predictability on the ability to navigate this. We don't know how aggregate demand is going to be impacted from the interstate. And remember, the Australian balance sheet, the private balance sheet, is in a very good shape simply because the pandemic was the single biggest transfer of money from the governments to the private sector ever in history. So the slowdown in housing prices, the slowdown in assets, the ability to have a real impact on you and I's purchasing power is smaller than it usually is in this cycle, simply because we have a higher level to start from. Mm. Your um, outlook for Q3 and indeed probably for the rest of the year is calling for a paradigm shift, that inflation will be the great equaliser. What do you mean by that and what happens if markets fail to recognise this? Yeah, so in, in the futures market, there's a saying, if you want lower prices, you need higher prices. So this fact that we actually have so such a high level of cost in the economy means that everybody adapts very, very quickly. I think you can recognize that over the last 20 years, nothing has really changed in Australia. It all became about being long real estate and dividends from, from, the, from the banking and, and insurance sector. That's not what we need. What we need is productivity. We need the real economy to pick up. And in order for the real economy to pick up, there needs to be a paradigm shift into investment in actually people, which is good news, education, and then setting the side on an economy which is far more balanced in terms of this tangible and intangible. The tangible assets today is less than 70% of the global value of stocks. Uh, so we need that to move. Basically, there's too much IP, too many ideas about what platform to operate on, but we can't deliver the basic needs of clean air, clean water, and certainly a baseload electricity into the system. Well, speaking of electricity, we know that over in Europe, and particularly the UK, there is an energy crisis looming there. Uh, they have uh, UK CPI and PPI also out uh, this week. There's a surge of inflation. <coughs> a lot of analysts are saying that a recession is already baked in. Um, but all is on pause for the next week while the uh, country and the world mourns the passing of the Queen. What is your view on the UK, uh, UK economy in light of all these issues? Uh, taking aside the, uh, the mourning of the Queen, of course, but, but the overall economy has a fundamental problem, which is that they run a current account and a budget deficit. On top of that, the sterling continues to be weaker, so the inflationary impulse is very, very strong. 
It has somewhat been capped by the new and incoming Prime Minister Truss, because, of course, he put a cap on uh, electricity bills at 2,500 pounds, which is still massive uh, in, in relative scale. But, but, you know, we know from history trying to cap any sort of impact from the commodity market, or in this case, electricity, which is generated off the commodity market, will not work. It only builds the pressure and it extends the period in which we have a high level in inflation. So let me also be clear, when I talk about high inflation, I'm not talking about that the UK will have 10% inflation for the rest of the lifetime. No one. I'm talking about that the average inflation rate over the next five years will be at a bare minimum double the rate that we've seen in the past. Similar for Australia, similar for Europe, similar for the US. Steen Jacobson, great talking to you. Thank you for joining us on The Business. Thank you. Yeah, that's unusual. Normally, uh, I feel the need to disagree with people, but yeah, I, I think he sounds like he's right with what well, he's saying. It, it's there was um, the reason I, I thought it's uh, there was a couple of things that you've said in the past was the the cure for high prices is is high prices. Is that you're saying? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's a thing that's said that I have also said. It's it's not my saying. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. a thing that they say. And also the the um, I think last week we were talking about you know. When money's all in real estate and paying mortgages, it's it's you know it's not in businesses, it's not in productivity and things like that. Yeah, it seems like Steen Jakobsen and I might be cut from similar cloth. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, do you have any things that you wanted to talk about from that? Um, the the one thing popped in my head while he was talking, he's talking about the lack of supply of things that are needed. Yeah. And I was reading today on. Twitter. <laughs> I wake up and read the paper, and for me, reading the paper is just looking at Twitter for a yep. bit. But um, some dude in Ireland was saying he can't get copper, and the person's like, "Well, how much copper do you need?" And he's like, "Oh, just like several, you know, several lengths of this diameter." It sounds yeah. like he's a plumber. Yeah. Um, and he's like, "I can't get it." Do you remember when all of the the new ACT like park furniture had copper trims and someone stole it all. Oh, you told me this before, yeah, yeah, yeah dog. <laughs> um, but yeah, the if, if central banks are raising rates because of inflation, mm. but the reason prices are going up is because the price of raw commodities is high. Yep. Then and those raw commodities are needed. Um, then, like, obviously, if you crash the economy, that, that pushes the oil price down. But by slowing the economy, you might not actually really push some of these commodity prices down because those commodities are needed. And, mm-hmm. and oil, for example, is a big input in pretty much everything. Yep. Energy is a, a big input. So if energy is high-priced, and even with a slowing economy, the prices stay high, Yep. you're still going to get this signal of high inflation. Mm. And then that's going to potentially tell the central banks, well, let's raise interest rates more. Yep. And and what that does potentially is just screws around the real economy while still having high inflation because the inputs are high because they're just high-priced inputs. Yep. And we, we've had a for a long time where energy is relatively cheap. Yep. In, in history, I'm sure when... In the days of Quest for Fire, when this documentary that my brother used to like, you know, they're searching for fire, Yep. right? That's energy. Yes. That was like the only thing they like really needed. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the price of that fire that they search for, like, you know, some of these cavemen died 
in, in pursuit and battles with his fire. So the cost of that energy was extremely high then. And yeah. and in earlier civilizations, I'm guessing the cost of energy was extremely high. Um, I remember reading or hearing a thing that in, in samurai Japan, uh, to have a warm bath was like something, it was like a big deal because wood was hard to get. Yeah. And there was wood around, but there were restrictions on how it could be used or whatever. So like he- heating yep. was, was, a, I think, reserved for the samurai class and, and above, that kind of yeah. thing. So it, it could just be the case that we have for a long time had energy as a really low percentage of our cost of living. Yep. And it's just now doing something that might be reverting to a mean mm-hmm. or, or going back to what, what, what is maybe more normal based on history. Yes. And that might just be structural yeah. as well. Like, let's just say, and, and this isn't how the world works, but let's just say everything, all pricing was reliant on the price of oil at some point. Like, it all yeah. goes back to the price of oil. And there's no alternatives. This is a fantasy scenario because mm-hmm. there, al- there are alternatives, um, but, but not for everything with oil. But anyway, so the price of oil dictates the price of everything. What if we're just running out of oil? Like, what if there was a scenario where there's no alternatives and you're running out of oil? That means the price of it is going to go up, right? And then you effectively have less wealth because everything's impacted by oil and oil ultimately is wealth, right? Yep. And at the same time, central banks are like, oh, the price of everything's going up. We're going to make interest rates higher. Yep. So in a situation where there's less wealth because there's less oil, they're also then making the cost of everything, cost of debt go up, which, yeah. which, which forces um, financial pressure. Do you know much of that, that peak oil theory that like we're going to run out? Oh, yeah. They, that's been around for ages. This, this idea that we'll re- reach peak production and then we'll just go downhill in production until- Is that because no they production. just like physically run? I just remember there was a dude on Joe Rogan like years ago, like 10 years ago um, that he was- uh, I think he unearthed- He was famous for unearthing corruption in the LAPD or something. But that was one of these things he used to bang on about peak oil theory and that we're all- the sky is falling. Yeah, I think I think like we're supposed to have peaked in the seventies, we're supposed to have peaked in the eighties, we're supposed to have peaked in the nineties. Where we're yeah. always like we 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 reach peak oil a lot of times according to several predictors. Yeah. So I mean, we will reach it at some point. You yeah. have to reach it at some point. Um, when that is, I don't know. Yeah. But the point is, if 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 the cost of inputs are structurally high, mm. then I don't see how raising interest rates and and making life harder. For people who already now are paying more for inputs because the price of inputs is higher. Yeah. So if if petrol, if energy's gone up, if if fuel's gone up, if some commodities have gone up, mm. and that's a structural thing, that just means the price of stuff is going up. The cost of living's going up, right? Yep. And then at the same time, central banks are like, all right, well, let's make it even harder. Let's raise interest rates to to these indebted people with home loans and stuff. So, yeah, it's um, I I, I think. The, the the way to have prosperity is to to create real and meaningful things. Yeah, I think a thing is though that you can only have so much junk in your room, right? And yep. and that's why this this guy from Saxo Bank um, that we just played, he was saying that you have a lot of IP that we have surplus IP, we have surplus intellectual property, mm-hmm. we don't have surplus last mile commodity delivery, we don't have surplus energy at the moment. Um, there's only so many physical things you can have. Which, which makes sense that once once a society's got those physical things in aggregate mm. or in general, they start wanting services because, again, there's only so much junk you can fit in your room. Yep. Um, so so it's, not, it's not astonishing to me that you have all these services. I, I think the difference is now that 
the under supply or, or the higher cost of the raw materials is is more noticeable because and i think it's somewhat got to do with the amount of debt we have in the system yep um, it makes affordability of those things harder when you've also got interest to pay yeah it's just interesting they're raising interest rates at the same time yeah but this is the thing i've been harping on for a while that a lot of people are saying it's insane the central bank's raising interest rates because mm-hmm. the price of things going up is more to do with um supply problems rather than yep. excessive demand yeah so so what to do um for someone like me my Hoarding gold, hoarding cash. Well, um, again, I mean, just because just that's that's one economic theory, who knows? I, I think if you don't have debt and you're just averaging into long-term investments that yep. you think have merit, uh, there's still nothing yep. that changes that, I think. Yep. Especially if, if you have this notion that some of the problems are ahead of priced in. Yep. Uh, I've been reading stuff saying it's time to panic, you know, things are going to crash or whatever. Mm. Um, but I mean, I've been reading that for ages and yeah, sure things look bad, but I just, I don't think central banks are going to be raising and raising and raising. Yes. Like, it looks like recessions on the way. Like you heard the FedEx one. Yep. You, you heard the, what happened to FedEx? It oh, the, the delivery in a day? No, no, no. Okay. So I'm guessing they did their earnings and they dropped 20%. Yes. So people are saying that's a, a a bit of a signal about where the economy is yeah okay um because obviously they distribute stuff everywhere and i don't know what's caused their profits to drop i'm assuming their profits are dropped if they drop 20 just from less usage or something well yeah i don't know if their profits are dropped but they drop 20 percent the stock mm. and if that's if that's because profits have dropped or because fedex is saying we expect profit to drop or something like that the less stuff getting sent around, mm. that less energy in, in, in the economy effectively. So yeah. uh, people are saying the drop in FedEx is a, a big a big warning sign, whether it yeah. is or not. But it's an interesting thought that you can have some businesses that are, are signals of, of where the economy is going. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, um, let's just say Bunnings, for example, um, released. And Bunnings is part of West Farmers, but say Bunnings was on its own. And they put out a release in the next week saying that the purchase of all building materials has dropped off a cliff. Then that that would be a bit of a signal. It's like, all right, well, that's that's obviously saying that the the housing obsession is is dropping a mm. bit, and, and and people could use that as a signal for what might happen next. Yeah. Okay. Um, what else did I have? Uh, oh yeah, so. James again. He's not here. He's he's off doing some homework for a, for an assignment to get even smarter. Yeah, I wonder what he's studying. Yeah, um, some advanced origami course. I think. <laughs> he um, he he forwards a lot of material to me for for, for the episodes. Oh, really? So you get it from me and James? You must yeah. Be, you, must, you must just be like, geez. No, it's good. I mean, it's it sort of exposes to me to stuff that I would never come across, you know, from just like different sources that I would never check out. So it's really good. But a lot of EV stuff. So, um, and I guess in response to, I guess, you, uh, when, you know, you're talking about your, your car being nice and cheap and super value and the discussion we're having, you know, instead of putting your cash flows into an expensive car, if you put them into investments- and things like that. So, if cars are a bad investment unless they're generating revenue, why should I be interested in them as as a as a retail investor? Yeah. So so 
the, you're, and you're saying, why should I invest in car manufacturers yeah. when cars are a bad investment? Yeah. Like, is everyone going to cotton on to this and just start stop buying new cars? Well, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe. Like, I, I, I don't know why people are buying new cars now yeah. unless they are doing it for business purposes mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's a write-off in, yep. in tax and all that sort of stuff. Like, yeah, I think if, if everything's electric in five years- mm. Then, and someone bought a $200,000 Mercedes that's a combustible combustion fuel one today. Yeah. That, that has to be worth peanuts in five years yeah. if everything's gone electric. Yeah. It's the running costs are higher. It's all of a sudden you look like the douchebag with the pollution coming out of your exhaust or whatever. So, yeah, with, you'll end up look, like, you know, you drive behind some cars and they're just blowing black smoke. Mm. And whenever that happens, I'm just like, you douche. Yeah. Like, get your car serviced, whatever. Maybe yeah. they can't afford to get it serviced. Maybe I'm judgmental. Some people like that. The, the, uh, you know the phenomenon of coal rolling? <laughs> okay, that's a thing, is it? In, in, in the US, particularly with the big trucks. Yeah, they, right. they put stacks on them and then, like, when you boot it, like, thick, like, uh, like, uh, like thick black smoke pours out. I wonder if that's a political statement. It's like an Probably. anti-woke um, protest or something. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know why people are buying new cars um, at the moment, and and why then would you buy a car manufacturer, and and probably some of the big push for everyone being obsessed with Tesla is because of the idea that Tesla may replace a lot of legacy car manufacturers. Yep. With that said, though, like I've read stuff saying that Teslas aren't that good compared to other electric vehicle makers. Like I think. Um, yeah, I've heard quality like is not top notch. Yeah, okay. and I think Porsche or some German brand supposed to have like some super good electric vehicles. Yeah, like there's a lot of people who've gone short Tesla, right? Yeah, and 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 have had their ass handed to them, and they're yeah. constantly putting out stuff why Tesla sucks. And obviously, yeah. there's you know because they're short Tesla, um, and and they seem to have a bit of a chip on their shoulder with Tesla. Yeah, um, they seem to lash out emotionally rather than just act like rational investors. Yeah, sometimes, but. There, there apparently are other car manufacturers that have good battery stuff as well, and Tesla's mm. not the be-all and end-all. Mm. But I guess um, if if we look at legacy car manufacturers like the horse and cart industry, mm. and then the Teslas are the new Fords and all that sort of stuff, yep. then yeah, sure. It's why why would you be investing in horse and cart shares when when combustible vehicles have come along? Yep. And and yeah, I, I question why someone would buy car manufacturers. Yeah. Now, um, maybe the price is really cheap mm. for them, but um, yeah, like I think some will have to die. If Tesla if Tesla becomes dominant in the car space, it has to be because other incumbents lost market share. Yep. There has to be losers. It's not. It's not like everyone in the world will have a car. There's. It, it's a bit of a zero sum thing to some extent. There's only so many cars that will be made, and if all these EV um, manufacturers are taking market share, that has to be the expense of existing mm. manufacturers. So yeah, I, I, I um, like. There's a question: Why invest where it's hard to invest? Yes. So even if there'll be car companies that do well out of it. If it's not really clear which ones are going to do well out of it, maybe just stay away from that space. Yeah. And Tesla's share price has done well, right? And Tesla will probably do well, but it doesn't mean Tesla at this share price will do well. Yep. Buying Tesla when it was 20 bucks, obviously, but mm. now it's very priced and, and like it's very highly priced and there's a lot of um, 
positive energy baked into the share price. Yep. It's not to say they won't achieve it. Um, Elon Musk seems to be an amazing businessman as far as that yeah. goes. But yeah, so sometimes if it's just too hard, you don't have to invest in it. Yep. So may, you know why 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 would you invest in in car manufacturers? No one's no one's making you. Yes, would be the thing. Um, yeah. Why should I? Well, should you? Yeah, and if you should, how? It's like yes. Yeah, there's a lot of ifs. The more ifs there are in the world of investing, the the more risk of getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. So, because I saw, uh, did we talk about it last week? The, I came across that article that, uh, at least in Australia, Toyota. I think they're going to hit the delivery market or like commercial vehicle market for electric vehicles before hybrids. I'm guessing. No, not hybrids. So oh, the, I thought the whole, I thought Toyota's whole thing was hybrids. Well, they're, they're hybrids, no, but in terms of their electric offerings, so the Hiace, like the, the the delivery van, that's that's the one they're going to do first, and then they're going to repurpose a bunch of those city vans, like the little like um, the Peugeot ones with the side door on them. They're like a hatchback, but like oh, a yeah. big back on them. So I think that's what they're doing first, and then a couple of years after that, they're going to offer their full big, like top to bottom electric range so i i I saw two things um one one was a electric vehicle towing a a fuel source oh yeah and people were joking like oh look they're towing the um electric jet the 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 petrol generator behind to power the fuel source (laughs) but then someone's like no they're towing a battery but that's that's an interesting thought because i've always like been saying that the the range of a vehicle like there's this obsession with getting it over 500 miles or something. Yep. And for me, it's like, why not just have a battery that goes 150 kilometers because who drives that in a day in yep. general? And then for people who, who want to drive more, obviously they can get um, ones with bigger batteries. Mm. But why not just have ones that have batteries that are 150 kilometers and then they can be replaced with a better battery five years or four years down the track that can go further. But if, if the battery is a big high cost and a big impediment for uptake... I don't know, psychologically, if you're not driving very far on a daily basis, then a small battery is probably, a small capacity battery is probably fine. And then it's like, well, what do you do when you want to do a long trip? So maybe maybe towing a battery behind you is actually the solution for a long trip. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, the swap and go for your gas barbecues. Yep. Maybe there'll just be something like that where you can mm-hmm. swap and go with your battery. Yeah. And just, you, just, you know, drive 300 kilometers and go to the server and just, all right, I want to swap my battery now. And yep. someone takes it out and puts it in. Who knows? So, in terms of, uh, like, I guess, you know, so you, with you with copper, so, you know, electric vehicles are going to increase the use of copper and stuff like that. Is that, is, is that a way of reducing risk? If, uh, I guess you, you, what am I trying to say? So, like, instead of investing in stuff like this, do you just keep going back in the production chain? Well, to, that's to kind of what I've safest. done. Like, I've, I've been, yeah. I've been like, well, electric vehicles are going to take off. I yeah. reckon. I have no idea which manufacturer to yeah. buy, so I'm going to get out of that. Yeah. Um, I've no idea what battery material is going to work. Yeah. Because um, there's all these different competing battery technologies, so I'm going to stay away from that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've, I've had the mindset that um, commodities uh, are something that um, have a chance of going up in price. Yes. And and I thought, well, what what commodities are, are crucial for electric vehicles? And copper is one. And it's like, well, it's not just electric vehicles. Like even energy production is going electric, mm. right? Um, or not, not, well, I mean, we've got, we've got energy production 
and a lot of a lot of energy production outside of cars might have been um, non-electric, and that's going electric. So you're going to yep. have electric motors as opposed to engines in, in in factories and all sorts of stuff. Yep. So my trend is things are going to be more electrified. Yep. And and I think copper is the way to play that because that's the best thing for electricity to flow through. So electric cars might have got me interested in in this electrification, but I just think it's an ongoing trend. And on top of that, it's like well. You know, maybe, and I don't think they do. Like, I don't think cars are, are that, they're not going to boost copper demand heaps, electric cars, right? But at the same time, the development of countries like India, when when they develop, there's going to be demand for copper in that. So it's, it's not just electric vehicles. It's like, well, I think we're going to be more electrified. And then also there's other factors like emerging economies that, we'll just need electricity because you go from lighting candles to using a light globe. So I, I just think overall the trend is in, in favour of electricity and, and copper is a good vehicle for that and apparently there's undersupply of copper. Mm. But uh, the, the point of departure to some extent was, well, I don't want to buy electric vehicle manufacturers. Mm. Where might one go with this? And then that led me to, to yeah. look at copper more. But I'd already had other vibes around wanting to buy commodities and 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 things have you ever had that the the inkling to check out food food or like agriculture like well, yeah i do own shares in um nutrien mm. and mosaic and they're, they're what are they like grain mosaic or? i think is potash in canada they're like oh, the biggest right, potash. So fertilizer is it yeah i think they're the biggest potash producer in the world there's some yeah and, and nutrien they're they're in fertilizer and distribution of fertilizer and they're, they're two big um yeah food plays how are their their outlooks going with the like the fertilizer shortages and stuff? Well, the price of their like yeah the, the, their profits have gone up heaps. I think mm. Mosaic. I think they're the ones that do the potash in Canada. Yep. Um, and they're trading at like a price of earnings of five or something. It's crazy. Mm. Um, but that's recent price to earnings because the commodity price has gone up heaps. Yep. Um, the same way you had Rio Tinto and Fortescue trading at like seven times earnings or eight yeah. times earnings because iron ore shot up. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, I, I think the, the, the commodities in general, the commodities that will be in demand, I think are a reasonable place to put money mm-hmm. um, if you can find the right miners at the right price. And the right miners are miners who are actually going to do um, mine well. Yep. Like the biggest risk in mining apparently is management. So that's um you know there's some businesses where the idea is so good even a monkey could run it yeah and there are other businesses where um management is really important yeah so finding finding a commodity player with good management like BHP during the GFC they, they had this massive boom because of um big Chinese demand for iron and they they had some CEO so they had they had someone over named Alex um he's he's a parent of one of my daughter's friends yeah and we we're talking about the pay of CEOs and and he was saying it's you know a bit extreme the pay and I'm like it's interesting though like say someone runs a 100 billion dollar company and they get 0.01% more out of that company's profits or whatever than the next CEO would have done then there's a case to give that person an extra $10 million yep. um, because they've added value. Yep. Um, and the, on the other hand, though, you had this guy who was the head of BHP. They bought Petrohawk Shale, right? I think when oil was really high priced um, and shale, uh, uh, turns out, wasn't like there's not as much oil in the shale fields as like people were led to believe or whatever. They spent like $20 billion on that. 
And then they wrote it down to $2 billion like five years later. Huh. So, this CEO who would, who would have been there based on merit and I can get more out of this business than anybody else, he cost the company like $18 billion. That's massive. And like I, 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 he probably I, still has a sick house and he shit. Probably, hey. yeah, he probably has a beautiful house and all sorts of wealth. And yeah, he destroyed so much shareholder wealth. But I wanted to buy BHP around that time. Yep. And they bought that Petro Hawk thing. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not touching it. I'm like, I yep. can't believe management is this stupid. Um, this is like me as like a early days investor. I'm looking at this going, this is just the dumbest thing I've ever yeah. seen. Like you're buying this thing at the peak. And there was already talk about the shale wells not being as um, yeah. full of- um, oil as, as they're supposed to be. I watched a really hectic movie about oil speculation. Have you seen There Will Be Blood? Oh, yeah. How Holy Toledo, what a good movie. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis, he's an actor. Dude, it, yeah. It's like a really highly stylized movie, but I found his acting so intense that it just like I was completely immersed. Like, And then at the end, where, spoiler alert, where he beats the dude to death with a bowling pin. <sighs> Brutal. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, good movie. So, yeah, I don't know what we were talking about before that, but um, yeah, commodities. So, mm. yeah, the, the car thing, I mean, that, that led me to a, a point of, you know, other ideas, mm. basically. And for me, like the guy from Saxo Bank, um, I, I think real things matter. Yep. I, I, I love the idea of owning something like Microsoft where you've got a really high switching cost and it's software because... To reproduce software, you just press a button and there's another piece of software, yes. right? It's, it's, it's zero cost of manufacturing yep. um, once you've got the IP there effectively. Whereas to reproduce another pound of copper, you have to extract yeah. probably, you know, five pounds of dirt and crush it or, you know, five pounds of rocks and crush them, whatever. So, yeah. um, the software businesses are amazing if you've got a monopoly in a moat. Um, it's just trying to find them at the right price. Yeah. And, and because I think real things matter... I decided to look for real things like commodities. Yeah. Normally, I'm really anti-commodities, by yeah. the way. Like, mines are the worst investment um, because um, – well, not the worst investment, but in general, I think they suck as investments because you've got idiots like the guy that ran BHP buying Petrohawk or whatever mm. it was. Um, or Eagle Hawk? Eagle? I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah, maybe it was Eagle something. Anyway, it was some massive waste of BHP shareholders' money. But even then, you've got a mine. You've got good miners – and I've never seen them say, we're just going to run this mine until it's empty and return all the dividends, all the profits to shareholders. They're always looking for a new mine to mine. Mm. And, and I'd rather find a mining company that's just like, nah, this is a good mine. It's low cost. We're just going to use this as a cash cow and pay all profits and dividends. Yep. But they don't. They want to find a new job for themselves later. Yep. So they're always acquiring new prospective mines or existing mines. And whenever that happens, there's risk. Mm. So that that's problematic, and and a mine might last for ten years. So you do all this research for a mine that will last ten years, and then have like a crash in the commodity prices, like we've had now, mm. um, whether that's a blip or not. And then that obviously pushes the profits down. So you've got fewer years to recover any bad years yep. in in a short mine life mine. Yeah. So you're finding a long life mine, which is what I like, with good management, who's actually going to pay out dividends mm. rather than trying to find the next long life mine, it's really challenging. Mm. And that's why royalty streamers appeal to me so much. They yeah. like, you know, Franco Nevada does have good management. Yeah. And, and you're saying they serve the function of like vet, essentially vetting the management of the mines. So like they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as as royalty streamers, they're they're not going to make investments with crappy management. Yep. 
Um, hopefully, because yeah, it, it's in their interest for to the royalties to be as strong as possible. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully, they're they're, they're choosing the right management to, to yeah. back. Um, and and they reinvest their earnings um, in in new mines, which is what I don't like miners yeah. doing. But Franco Nevada seems to be much better custodians uh, of money. I told my friend about uh, the idea of royalty streams in Franco Nevada, and he was disgusted. He's like, they're leeches. I, was like, <laughs> I, I didn't know enough to sort of argue back, so I just shut up. Yeah. yeah well, look, if, if, if you want real things in the world, that comes from mining. Mm. And if you want mining to exist, it has to be profitable. Yes. And yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's you know? it. If you, we'll if you go don't back like, to the Stone Age, like you said. That's right. So, if you don't like mining, go back to the Stone Ages. So it's reality. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, uh, commodities, I think the thing that, that brought that into my mind, I was- uh, uh, on Friday, my boss was listening in on a, a, a land auction somewhere in like central New South Wales, and because uh, he he's just recently invested in a in a big chunk of land, like productive agricultural land, and he went in with uh, uh, like with a syndicate with a certain price. It was like maybe eighteen hundred bucks a hectare or acre, yeah. and um, by the time it was all said and done at the end of the auction, it was like over twenty five, like twenty six hundred. And um, but huge amounts of money, like these properties going for three, four, five million dollars and stuff like that. That doesn't sound like much money for for me. So yeah, <laughs> it sounded, yeah. sounded hectic. But um, is there any way, like, are, are there like funds or like companies you can invest in that invest in this stuff? Well, there's a company like called the Australian Agricultural Company. If it's still around, I think they yeah. had lots of cattle land. Yes. Um, Rural Co Holdings, maybe that's got land. I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess you'd have to look. But there, there are some that, that are landowners. Uh, what is it? Costa. I think they lease yeah. the land. Costa do like veggies out in um, Griffith or something. Yeah. So and, and is that like a roughly? Is is it is it like just as much as property exposure is actually going and buying? I think. Well, rural land, um, yeah, I think that's gone up by and large with, you know, like residential type land. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, like I've looked at stuff like that before as a way of getting exposure to rural property. Yeah. Um, the, the the question is what business are they running on top of the land? How good is yeah. that? Um, how good is management? And like, yeah, nothing's nothing's made me want to buy them after actually digging into them. Yeah. So okay. the idea of buying a, a company that owns farmland is really appealing. Yeah. But then when you dig into it, the, the, you know, what, what they actually make, the money they make, the way they um, they often give themselves, like they report profits because the farmland's gone up. Yep. And so the actual business might not be doing very well cash flow wise at all. Yep. But they're saying bumper profit this year because oh, so it's just paper profit because so they've revalued the property. So it'd only be like a true profit if you sold the place, sort of thing, right? Well, it's a paper profit in the sense that they've not generated any money. Yes. The, the price has gone up. Yep. Um, apparently, because yep. someone's valued it. Yeah. And if I'm a business like so that, just make it speculation. Well, that, I don't know. If I'm a business like that and I'm dodgy, I'm getting a valuer every year who keeps on pushing the price up. Yeah. And then I'm getting a good bonus because the profits went up every year. And it's like, well, you actually, there was no cash flow. Yeah. And all these, you know, so-called profits are just the price going up because the valuer said it's gone up. Yeah. But you don't really know if that's the right price. Mm. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of real estate in San Francisco that valuers have put prices on two months ago and they're probably worth half of what the the um valuers put the prices on yeah okay you know with all the silicon valley firms leaving downtown 
San Francisco. Yeah, geez, that's apparently their property market's going to fall off an absolute cliff. Yeah, and I doubt every single valuation on every single property there is accurate. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Is that that? That's with the how the 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 like the homelessness and drug situations there so bad in San Francisco. Well, I don't know why they have that homelessness and drug situation so bad there. But what I'm talking about is um, companies that just started doing work from home who oh, aren't going right. to go back to the office buildings they've like hired out. So yeah. like big tech companies, big office buildings. Yeah. And then they're just like, well, we're probably not going to renew that lease. Yeah. Okay. Because I was watching a, a documentary where the liberal policies of the, the, the mayor or whoever, governor or something- um, Basically, it's turned the place into a mecca for just like living on the street and taking fentanyl. So, like, the quality of life there is just like super bad. There's like people living in tents, pooping on the ground, killing each other up and stuff like that. It does seem to be a thing they like in American politics to make all these woke Democrat places look like they're like disaster tent towns. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Like, maybe they, I, I don't know. Like, it's, they're very biased on both sides. They probably yeah. are like that to an extent, but yeah, it's probably, probably exaggerated by the people who, who have the opposite worldview from there. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't get, though, if you're homeless, surely you want to live somewhere nice and warm. Like, why would you go somewhere? Isn't San Francisco warm? Oh, maybe it is. I it's thought, in California, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just picture most of the north part of America being cold. Yeah. Maybe it is warm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Time for a break. Hey? Oh, yeah. Cool. Need to go to the toilet. Keep going, mate. Ah, that's all good. I'll just cut it out. No. Cut what out? Huh? Cut what out? Just the gap. Oh, yeah. I think it. You're a professional. That Luke Roman thing would be good to talk about. Yeah. Uh, so, Luke Roman, uh, you sent me a, uh, a screenshot there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll bring it up so I can read it. Yeah. So, um, Luke Groman saying um, energy has always been the global reserve currency. Gold was merely an energy proxy. And then from 1973 to 2004, US dollars was kept, quote, as good as gold for oil, end quote, as oil was kept in a 15 to $30 per barrel range via US rate cuts or hikes and hikes, cuts slash hikes. Gold moving back into the system equals energy resuming role as global reserve currency. Um, many investors have noticed that gold priced in barrels of oil has been remarkably steady for centuries. Far fewer investors understand the implications of this relationship. Gold is just an energy proxy and a gold-based system equals energy is a true global reserve currency. So that's um, I thought that's interesting because um, I guess that kind of summarizes the extremity of Luke Luke Groman's thoughts in yes. that space. Um, energy is ultimately what matters. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, so uh, then what? So like, what what does that mean to me? Well, I mean, you got the gold bugs, right? Mm-hmm. Who say gold's the global reserve currency, yep. and he's saying, well, it's energy, and um, if if you know, they always look, look, what what's X priced in gold? Like you know, the a suit, a man's suit has mm-hmm. has been priced in gold as one ounce of gold historically, yep. or whatever. 
um, some things have gone down relative to gold, like mm-hmm. US dollars yep. have gone down relative to gold over the decades or whatever. And he's saying that, well, US dollars have, everything's done that relative to oil as well, yep. because ultimately oil is the reserve currency, not mm-hmm. gold. Um, and uh, just going back to this notion that you need real things. Yes. So, the, the one thing that matters in, in life is energy, right? Yeah. You lose your energy, you're dead. Yes. Um, it's, it's the most important thing in nature, energy. It's weird that we have economic systems that place value in, in paper notes, for example, or, or, mm. or, or digits on a computer screen that, that say money um, yep. rather than actual energy. Yep. Um, and there's this, um, I think it was Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, said that the more abstract a thing becomes from the original source, the more profit there is to be made from that in markets. Yep. And he gave the example of the farmer doing the whatever farming they're doing, let's just call it wheat. Um, they they sell the wheat at some marketplace and they make some amount of money from that. Mm. And the marketplace gets wheat from all the farmers and sells it and they actually make more money than the yep. farmers. And then the marketplace will take that to a manufacturer, I guess, and they'll turn that into something they make more money. Yep. Um, and then there's a futures exchange for wheat yep. on the stock market yep. and the futures exchange makes the most money even though that's the most removed from yeah. the actual thing. Um, maybe we're in a world that's just been highly removed from the value of energy. Yep. And and we, we, we've been very abstracted away from the importance of raw materials and commodities mm. and, and maybe some of these... Um, stuff we're experiencing now is 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 bringing us back to that reality yeah that, okay. that, that's central to everything is actual things yes um but it's just an interesting thought because um gold bugs argue that u.s dollars aren't real ultimately yes. um and he's an, he, and groman's obviously an energy bug and he's arguing that dollars aren't real ultimately but he's saying beyond that it's like you know even gold's not really real it's it's it well goes i guess back that, that was my question at the very beginning it's like um, like if it boils down to the full, like you say, like a full primal situation, what good's a gold coin to me? Like, or yeah. good to, to someone else? Dude, you can have this. What am I going to do with it? Like, but uh, energy, like you say, you know, you can cook food, you can build stuff, whatever. Yeah. And- the, the, the systems required for energy to actually go anywhere, though, that's the interesting thing too. It's like, you know, yeah. if, if you have some some crazy apoplic- apocalyptic situation, oil rigs aren't going to be yeah. working. And the, the, the- You'd go backwards to like wood and forest supplies and flints, right? Yeah, you know? ultimately. But yeah. the supply chains around energy yeah. um, will be massively disruptive in, yeah. in, in, in a lot of, you know, apocalyptic type scenarios, whereas yeah. the gold coins in your pocket- um, and, and, and you've got the gold, but, yeah. but to get the energy places is problematic. And we're seeing that at the moment. Mm. Um, extracting energy, moving it places is problematic. Yeah. But I just thought it was an interesting thing. Um, like, because, you know, we, we looked at Groman and a couple of other people a few episodes ago. And, and I think that just really um, is a good summary of where Groman's coming from that, yeah. that even gold is ultimately just um, a proxy for energy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so that, that's that, and that's why I wanted to share that. Yeah. Um, interestingly, there's this other guy, Pierre Arnaud or something like that. Apparently, he's a famous energy investor, mm-hmm. and he did this um, very brief analysis of the energy situation in Europe yep. based on the natural gas they're not getting from Russia yep. and, and what have you. And he reckons that everything will be fine if Europeans can just accept that they have to have their heater at no higher than 19 or 18 degrees Celsius. 
Huh. So that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Like you know, because I've been reading stuff saying you know Europe's screwed or whatever, yeah. and he broke down the various sources of energy where they come from, what they use for. Yeah, and he's like, ultimately, yeah, if, if Europeans can just go to eighteen <laughs> degrees, funny. everything's okay. I used to argue uh, vehemently with my with my dad on the uh, the ducted heating in our house. Eighteen, it's like pretty cold, like. And um, especially in the crappy Australian houses, yeah, like you got to wear a jumper and stuff. Like, I was like, What the hell's the point of having a heater? So, you always turn out 22, 23. But, um, mate, he's ahead of his time, he's yeah. uh, saving Europe, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, my wife's the same. I'm, I'm trying to put it to 21, and she's like, 18's fine. I'm like, yeah. Why we can afford yeah. to have it at 21? Yeah, but it's funny now that you know, uh, um, time's gone on a little bit. Kelly's like takes it to the extreme. You'll come home and it's like your face peels off when you walk in the door. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, yeah. Turn it back down. But. There you go. Anything else? What are we doing next? No, I think that's it. Um, anything Anything to speak of geopolitics wise, just to wrap up the episode? Have you noticed anything? Uh, Sounds like, you know, Ukraine beating up on, on Russia now. And- oh, that's an interesting one because I don't believe anything I hear, right? So, um. On one thing, it's like Ukraine's beating up on Russia, yeah. which is, it looks like is what's happening, yeah. right? And then other people are like, nah, it's a strategic withdrawal because Russia's going to encircle them. And it's like, all right, well, we're going to find out pretty quickly, yeah. you know, which, because there's, um, is it Douglas McGregor? He's um, some ex-American military guy who's yeah, okay. been saying for ages, Russia's, you know, won the war, they're kicking ass. And yeah. it's like, well... Well, yeah, kind of like I feel like they should have already like won by now based yeah. on the way you were talking. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, apparently he's saying that it's a trick for Russia to encircle Ukrainian troops, so they're they're retreating, so then they can surround the Ukrainians. And it's yeah, like we'll, we'll find out very soon, I think, if that's right. So it's a um, Braveheart move. They do that in Braveheart. Yeah, I'm sure it's a pretty common move in military yeah. history. Um, but I, I recall is Douglas McGregor saying that Russia did that already to Ukraine like four months ago and all oh. the Ukrainian troops are screwed. Yeah, right. So, so um, yeah. Because yeah. I saw that it was, um, I was reading a, a news article to the same, uh, talking about all this stuff and they were saying it's it's more a reflection of Western training and weaponry that's finally settled in. Like, you know, they've got the stuff, they know how to use it now. So, it's they're, they're more effective. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, there's obviously going to be a learning curve. Yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 I really don't know what's true in any of that sort of stuff. Mm. Like, um, the ghost of Kiev, or whatever, was a myth. Um, that island where they all said "f you" to the Russians. Apparently, that was a myth. I Did, just can't believe any of it. Yeah, I remember my uncle in Poland sent a video. That's like, oh, look what the Russians are doing, and it was literally computer game footage. Yeah, like it was a plane shining up with like traceables. Going, I was like. Like, yeah, look like, at the look, Russians, look, they're look, making mad like, computer games. He's like, look what they're doing. I was like, <laughs> and Tim, Tim spotted it, but he didn't, he didn't call it out. He just was like, it almost looks like a computer game. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the Mario and Luigi jumping <laughs> yeah. across the screen? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's very hard to believe anything. Um, so we'll see what happens. Hopefully people stop dying. That's, that's the main thing. It's, yeah. Um, I think, I think I told you before, I saw this um, picture of um, when it was first starting. Yeah. It's a picture of a chessboard and all the pawns and all the bishops and all that sort of stuff are just tipped over on the table because yep. they're dead. Yeah. And then it had a little um, four square board to the side yeah. with the king and the queen. Yeah. On each side, the white king and queen and the black king and mm. queen eating dinner together. Yeah. I thought that was a really good um, visual metaphor for what happens in war. It's um, the, the poor people die and the leaders stay yeah. alive. And it's like the- uh that's the, the final scene in Animal Farm where they're looking through the 
looking through the window and you can't tell who's the pigs and who's the humans? No, I don't remember that. Oh. But yeah, anyway, it's, um, it's unfortunate that the people who suffer the consequences of the war are the ones who are the least involved in starting the war. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Oh, well, we might wrap it up there, sir, if you've got nothing else. Yeah, nothing else. Um, yeah, missing James, I guess. Yeah, he, he yeah. Come so back and add some actual intelligence to the conversations. And- what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, thanks for your time today, man. And uh, I'll I'll catch you and and hopefully James next week. Yeah. Cool. See ya. Disclaimer. The information discussed on this podcast is for general information only. It should not be taken as constituting professional advice from Andy, James, Andre, or any guest they may speak with. We are not your financial advisors. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, taxation or other advice to check how the information discussed on this podcast relates to your unique circumstances. We are not liable for any loss caused, whether due to negligence or otherwise arising from the use of or reliance on the information provided directly or indirectly by use of this podcast. The music for today's episode is by Alexi Action from Pixabay. Thank you for listening.